Thank you, Michael, for that. Very kind, and it was it was good. It was a good introduction, uh, very accurate, and uh, and it was a blessing. Um, even just thinking about you know how the Lord has you know led us through all these years and the things He's led us through, and and so um, just recalling all that as you gave that introduction as well, and um, you know. It may sound like, you know, all those degrees, you know, mean that this guy is like, you know, really knowledgeable about this and that. But if you want to know something about me, my heart is Christ. And so um, in every possible way, I want Christ to be center. And with that, uh, biblical spirituality is about that. And so that is that is my heart. And um, that is what I hope you hear as well as we get into the word this morning also. And so... Um, and I, I just want to say, you know, I, I just like to take a moment and just simply thank you for having us here, having me here and, and our family. It is, is a privilege, and, um, and it is even, you know, a delight and joy for me to be able to come and preach the word to you. Uh, it's just um, such a pleasure uh, to do that. And so um, thank you for having us, and uh, I know we've had such a, a great time so far just getting to meet each of you, and I hope to meet more of you as well. So... <laughs> Um, and so let, before we go to the Word, though, um, and go into uh, our message for this morning, let me take a moment to simply pray for us that the Lord would lead us in this time. Father, we, we come before you, Lord, and we, we come indeed with just thankful hearts, thankful hearts because of Christ, um, because of this glorious gospel that we uh, are partakers of, that we, we, we know Christ and, and he is our life and he is our treasure and he is the one in whom we are satisfied in. And we, we see that and we just say, that was not of us. <laughs> it was your grace and your mercy um, from first to last. And we, we rejoice that we can come, each one of us this morning, to come and worship you and to uh, Praise your name. And so we, we thank you for you. And thank you for this glorious gospel. Uh, this gospel is, uh, is what indeed brings us joy. It is, uh, gives us life, spiritual life, where we were once dead. Now we breathe and our hearts are beating and we have life. And so we rejoice in your work that you have done. And uh, just pray, Father, uh, as we come to your word, that Indeed, that you would um, help us, that you would be with us, you would help make clear your word, um, that your spirit would make clear your word and even applying it to our hearts, applying it to our lives as we consider it, as we think through it, um, and pray that you give us grace, that you would awaken uh, perhaps any here who uh, maybe need that, they, they, they need awakening and just they know you and they, they want to follow you more and just perhaps they feel like they're in a place where their faith is uh, in a low spot. Pray that you would just be with them, Lord, and even awaken and rekindle a passion for you and for the gospel. And even if, if there's someone here who does not know Christ, that you would in we indeed awaken them to see you and to see who Christ is and, and to turn to you by faith and trusting him. And we pray that all of us, though, uh, in leaving here, we would all respond to your word because it is exactly what you call us to do. And so help us to respond 
to you and all your word says this morning. And give me grace as I seek to faithfully preach it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a number of years ago, um, I guess it's probably been somewhere around 15 to 16 years ago, I took a class in college, uh, business ethics, and the professor in my class, you know, she asked us to basically go find someone to interview who really did not agree with us on something. So it could be, you know, anything, but something that, you know, really they did not agree with us in. And so the purpose of this assignment, it wasn't to really go and try to convince that person of, you know, our perspective or the way we see things. It was really just to go and to hear their point of view. And so um, as I heard this assignment, I was a relatively, you know, new believer at the time. Well, I decided that, you know, I knew this person I worked with at the time who was an atheist. And so I said, okay, this is the guy I'm going to, I'm going to interview. And so after talking to him, he agreed to do this interview, and I prepared my questions. And of course, you know, the professor said, you know, don't, don't make this about convincing uh, the person, but as a believer in Christ, you know, I, I knew I had a bigger picture that I wanted to, to paint for this person, and I wanted to in some way, even through questions, point him to Christ. And so that's what I did. Not every question or anything like that was aimed at that purpose, um, but that was my hope, is in some way, some fashion, I would be able to point him to Christ. And so asking him, after asking him a number of questions, I came to the final question, which was for me kind of hopefully the question that would make him think. Um, but this, the last question was this. I asked him, so what would it take for you to believe in God? So what would it take for you to believe in Jesus? And so after taking a moment to kind of consider the question and think through it, you know, he, he replied and he said, you know, if, if God could come down right now, literally come down and tap me on the shoulder, then I would believe. So, uh, and even, I can't remember if I actually said anything after this or actually said what I thought I might have, um, but what came to me at that moment was, you know, he did actually come down. <laughs> I mean, he didn't literally come down to my friend right then and there, but he did come down, you know, 2,000 years ago. And he demonstrated his love for us right there and then. Well, after that, though, like I said, I can't remember if I actually told him that. Um, I kind of think I said something to that end, uh, but <laughs> I can't quite remember, but... After that, I had another thought. So if the, if the miraculous works of God in the Old Testament were not enough for Israel and to cause them to believe, well, you know what? You know, neither would God coming down to my friend. Why? Well, the problem wasn't that Israel, you know, they needed more uh, signs or more, you know, proof of God's power or for my friend, rational proofs of God's existence, the problem was they needed new hearts. My friend needed a new heart. And outside of God's grace, the gospel and God's word, it appears as nonsense. Even as our passage says this morning, it appears as folly 
as foolishness. And so this leads us to kind of the big and main point of my message this morning and the main point of this sermon. Knowing God is not accomplished through signs or worldly wisdom, but through the crucified Christ. So if you want to have one main point for this morning, there's your main point. Knowing God is not accomplished through signs or worldly wisdom, but through, cruci- but through the crucified Christ. So to see this, then, let us turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And I'll be reading there until verse 25. May God bless the reading of his word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment the discerning, discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this letter written by the Apostle Paul, it was written to a troubled and divided church. So it was a port city. So if you went there, what you would find is you would find a a diverse culture, you know, of of trade, of merchants, you know, of people seeking positions of political power and of influence. You would see the wealthy, you would see the poor, you would see people engaged and really all variety of bad things as well, immorality, and even much false worship. And so this was the context for the Christians there in Corinth. This was kind of the air they breathed as they went out into the city in Corinth. And so they were steeped in worldly worship. They were steeped in worldly ideas, and they were steeped in worldly living. Sounds kind of familiar to <laughs> the world we and the, the nation we are encountering now. So this is where Paul, he calls them and he calls us not to pursue the world, but to pursue Christ. And so if you like to take notes, uh, this would be my official first point of this sermon here from verse 18. And this is it, that the word of the cross challenges the word of the world. The word of the cross challenges the word of the world. So in high school, before I was a Christian, you know, 
you'll probably remember this as well. I remember at the end of the school year, you know, you had your yearbook there, and you would go around and have people sign it. And, you know, it's usually an exciting time, and you get signatures from all these people, and they'd say all these different things, and you never really knew what they were going to write, and some good things, some bad things. And uh, so you uh, encountered all that. Well, during this time, I was not a, I was not a believer. And to my dismay, two Christians signed my yearbook. And that wasn't really the problem. The problem was for me at that time that they didn't just sign my yearbook. They also put a scripture in there as well. And so, something, I can't remember the exact passage, but something like John 3.16, Romans 10.9, you know, something to that effect. And so I was, in many ways, just to put it simply, I, I was, I was kind of horrified that they had done that. And I was, uh, I was not happy about that at all. And so what happened was, is as I went through the rest of the day, I would basically try to hide their signatures from anybody that uh, I knew was signing it. So I'd kind of have the yearbook out and have it like this and kind of have it covered, you know, trying to hide their signatures. Because I, I was, in many ways, kind of ashamed of this, that they had done that. And I was embarrassed by these Christians. I was under the impression that they were they were weirdos, <laughs> just to put it to put it plainly. And you know, if if you could really zoom in what was going on with me at that moment, what was really going on is I thought that Christians were fools. That they were foolish. And this word of the cross, it is foolishness or nonsense to those who are perishing. The question is, why? It's foolishness because the word of the cross, it lays low everything that the world lifts high and values. The word of the cross, it challenges the word of the world. So where the world is about pursuing self, the cross is about denying self. Where the world is about worshiping idols, the cross is about worshiping Christ. Where the world is about storing up treasures here on earth, the cross is about storing up treasures in heaven. Where the world is perishing, those living under the word of the cross are saved. So foolishness versus power. Perishing versus those being saved. So notice then, in your Bibles, this phrase, being saved. There in First Corinthians one eighteen. But what does that what does that mean? You know, I think if we maybe we're honest, if we wrote that passage today, you know, we would probably write it a little bit different. We would probably like write write someone like this. We'd be more comfortable with. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. I think we would be like, well, nail it down, Paul. Why did you say being saved? You know, we didn't have to write it that way. I mean, come on. But being saved it really should not trouble us, and hopefully it's not troubling you now. But being saved is not saying once a person receives Jesus Christ, they must do something to be saved. Let's clear that, that fog out of the way right now. But instead, it's pointing to the reality that God's true children will always be growing. They will always be being transformed, and they will always be being conformed 
than Christ until they finish the race. So God is still sanctifying, and he is still at work in his children. And the Corinthians, why was Paul telling them this? The Corinthians were being tempted to be like the world, when they were to be like Christ. So God, he called the Corinthians, and he's calling us to examine ourselves. God is about transforming us. He's about changing us. He's about conforming us into the image of his son. And so, as the Corinthians were struggling with the world and its wisdom, he was saying, that is not the life you're called to. You are called to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's calling them to embrace the cross-filled life and not the cross-less life. To embrace the cross Filled life and not the cross, less life. So where the word of the cross, it's foolishness to the world, it's life and hope to us. It's the power of God. And so we recognize that here in this gospel is true life, true hope, true rescue, and that's where our hope and rescue is found. So God is calling us to shamelessly embrace the cross-filled life and to let it challenge anywhere in our lives, in our hearts, that seeks to make much of us and not much of Christ. And that's exactly what we're tempted to do, isn't it? I mean, day in, day out, right? You wake up in the morning. You're tired. You haven't had your cup of coffee. I mean, stop talking to me. You know, whatever it is, you're in the battle already. So Paul and God, he is calling us to embrace this cross Filled life, we're continually, we're, we're examining ourselves and saying, how am I to become more like Christ? So a second point that we see here is that the word of the cross overturns the word of the world. And so we see this in verses 19 through 20. So Paul, he quotes here, From Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 14, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So Israel, what they were doing is they were seeking to avoid God's judgment that was coming from Assyria. And so what were they doing? Well, you know, even to the point they were trying to avoid this judgment, they started going to the world to seek out wisdom. So instead of the prophets, instead of the priests, they would go to the world and say, how can we avoid this judgment? Please give us some wisdom. Help us to avoid this judgment from God that is coming. And so they were turning to the the wisdom of the world and denying the wisdom of God. And so in verse 19 through 20, Paul here, he is challenging the Corinthians' reliance on the wisdom of their age and the wisdom of the world. And he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes. But how? Through the word of the cross. So all God has said and done has proven right and true in Christ. He is the true source of joy. He is the true treasure. He is the true 
hope. He is the true way. He is the true truth. He is the true life. He is the true king. He is the true prophet. He is the true priest. He is the true God. He is the true Savior for you and for me and for all people. There is no my truth. There is no you truth. your truth here. There is only the, the truth. So the wisdom world is a wisdom without the cross. So instead of a cross-less wisdom, We are being exhorted here to rest in the wisdom of the word. To rest in the wisdom of the word. So does this mean we can't glean anything from the world? I mean, that's got to be a question we ask here. We want to get the word of God in our life. Well, I think many people would be tempted to say so, you know. Um, But that's that's not what we should conclude here. I mean, right now, our lives, you know, are dependent on thousands of discoveries that did not come from Scripture. You know, many of the doctors you see and the companies you buy from, they are not primarily informed by God's Word, right? So instead of retreating from the world, I believe that this passage is calling us instead to seek to transform the world and not to leave it. So we aren't called to be monks, you know, who seclude ourselves from the world, but those who live out our faith everywhere we are and wherever we are. So instead, we we critique the culture, we critique the philosophies, we critique the ideas, we critique the attitudes and the trends of our culture according to God's inspired and inerrant word. And so let us proclaim the word of the cross and let its light transform culture and transform our nation and transform our workplaces and transform our homes and transform our marriages, transform our neighborhoods, transform our churches and preach the word of the cross everywhere and anywhere we can. Because we unashamedly say we belong to Christ. And that is is what the Corinthians were struggling with as well. Thirdly, we see human wisdom is not enough. Human wisdom is not enough. So verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Stop right there. The world, through all of its efforts, is unable to know God. So the philosophies of men are not enough. The intellect cannot get us to God. And here we see the great deception of the garden. So, if you will, with me, take a moment, and let's, let's go back to the beginning into the book of Genesis. And there, specifically in Genesis 3. So if you'll turn to Genesis 3 four, with me here. So Genesis chapter 3, verse, verses 4 through 6. And as you know, this is a very 
sad, and I guess the best word is devastating chapter. It's right where we are right now in a fallen world because of the things that happened here. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And as I read, pay attention to wisdom and what's being gained there. So the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So now mankind has wisdom. She saw that it was good for making her wise. But what kind of wisdom did she get? It was not a wisdom with God. It was a wisdom devoid of God. A wisdom detached from God. And that wisdom could never lead them back to God. And history testifies to that being exactly what men have done. Their efforts have been to try to figure out, okay, how do we get to truth? How do we figure out what's going on up there? And so they, in the same way, it testifies to the inadequacy of human wisdom. And so men said, let us try reaching God with our reason, you know, our logic without the word of God. And that didn't work. That would be modernism. Let us try reaching God through making meaning for ourselves. That's where we are right now. (laughs) That didn't and that is not working. I can make myself into whatever I want to be. And that's where we are now. And sadly, we are now living in a time such as this, like the book of Judges, where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And that is where the wisdom devoid of God has gotten us. So what should we do? What is the solution? Humbly, let us acknowledge and consider the inadequacy of our own wisdom and efforts. We are directed in the midst of all of our inadequacies, all of our failures, and our inability to reach God through ourselves to see our need to trust and treasure Jesus Christ. The life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself up for us. And here we come to the last point this morning. So though human wisdom is not enough, Christ is. So we happily preach and we testify that Christ is enough.
Verse 21. B. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And so it is through this foolish cross that we may know God. So the cross, it was contrary to what they expected, right? And contrary to what everybody expected. You know, the Jews, they wanted, you know, burning bushes. Even, even God's power displayed in great plagues like He had done before. Even in the parting of the seas. Even the sun being stilled. Even for God to heal the deaf, the blind, the paralyzed, or even to feed thousands with only a few loaves and some fish. And so they expected God's kingdom to come in power. And then the Greeks, they prided themselves in their lofty reason, in their oratory. They wanted to worship what could be reached by their own wisdom. Yet what they needed is the crucified Christ. The Messiah did not come to be served, but He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is not the vision of the Savior they had. A humble servant king. He didn't come to die for the worthy. He came to die for the unworthy. He didn't come to die for the righteous. He came to die for the unrighteous. Yet this is the Savior that we preach. The Savior we know. And so it calls Christ here. It says of Christ that He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Milton Vincent, a pastor in Riverside, California, he makes this point in his book, A Gospel Primer for Christians, about the power of God. And he says, Indeed, God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes, in the unimaginably hot boil of our massive sun, and in the lightning speed of a recent, recently discovered star seen streaking through the heavens at 1.5 million miles per hour, or a black hole that they just discovered. Yet in Scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. How powerful then must the gospel be that it would merit such a title? Amen. But what are we to do? We are to hope in this humble Savior. He has come. He is the Savior. Men wanted a demonstration of power, wisdom, and strength according to worldly standards. But God, He gave us His Son as the crucified Christ that He would appear to the world system as nonsense, yet be infinitely wise, and appear weak, yet be infinitely powerful. And then we are to be changed by this humble Savior. He is the one for whom we were made. And now live. So let us gladly live according to the word of the cross and be transformed by Him daily, Christ daily. And then we are to preach this humble Savior. Let nothing dissuade you from this. He is, remember, the power and the wisdom of God. And then we are to respond to this humble Savior. So if you're here and you don't know Him, He is calling you to trust Him. And maybe you've put off trusting in Him. You said, you know what, I I need more. You know, I need a sign. 
Or I need, I need God to come down and tap me on the shoulder before I will believe. But today, let me encourage you to trust and to entrust yourself to this Savior. And He will save you. He will give you life evermore. When you were separated from God, you may know Him this very day and have life forevermore. Give Him your life and you will have life. Know God, not through signs or worldly wisdom, but through the crucified Christ. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for this word in 1 Corinthians 1. Thank you that in every way, if we had a reason this morning to say we, we, we would not respond, may you, even now, work in our hearts to say, let us respond to this word. Let us be about Christ. Let us be cross-filled, not cross-less. So help us, Lord. May we respond by doing and taking these things into our hearts and minds and our lives and in everywhere we go.